Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, whether you have a device on your phone with an app or a printed copy, as I hope you'll bring to church with you on Sundays this year, I'd like you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. And when you find the book of 1 Corinthians, if you would be so kind as to turn with me to the 10th chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I know that Julie welcomed our guest a few moments ago. I too welcome you. I'm glad to see you. If I've not had the privilege of meeting you, I'd be honored to do so at the conclusion of the service. Me and my lovely wife will be out in the center of the concourse. We'd love to meet you and your family. If you are here and it is your first time with us, or perhaps it's your first time with us in a season, we're in a sermon series called American Idols. Over 21 years ago, this show launched. That didn't age you, did it? And we were introduced to the nation's top three Baptists. Now, I'll tell you why. One is always critical. One is a little ditzy and never knows what's going on, and one just loves everybody. American Idol was a show that launched looking for America's next great musical talent. It has spun off to many shows, as we talked about last week, and yet there was some irony to me in the name, American Idol. But the truth is, it's rather accurate. We do live in a culture, in a society, where we tend to idolize people of great talent, people of a great measure of ability. Now, I recognize that words have nuance to them, and that when we say, he was my rock idol, or she was my business idol, or he was my idol in high school, when I saw him play, or I sat in her classroom, We know that that does not necessarily mean that that individual is replacing their God with this person. Yet the Bible has a great deal to say about idolatry. We wanted to make sure as we begin this series on dealing with idolatry that we define it. As is so often the case, I like to lean on men and women smarter than myself. That's not hard to find. John Piper says idolatry is this. Anything that we come to rely on for some blessing or help or guidance in the place of a wholehearted reliance on the true living God. The reason I like Piper's definition is we are typically drawn toward thinking about idolatry as the object of our worship. And of course that is True, just a moment ago, less than a moment ago, I listened to you sing with great passion to the Lord God. The reason we gather here today is because we say he is worthy of our worship. We are here as a volunteer organization. Now, one person was forced to come this morning. You came and your tithes and offerings provide the budgets that we need to provide this place, to provide the personnel, the leadership, and you came of your own volition to worship the Lord, and you did so with great fervor. It was a blessing to me, and I know it will be a blessing to you. So when we think about idolatry, we immediately think about our worship, and we say, well, idolatry is when I bow down to a false god, when something that is not the God of heaven becomes the object of my worship. And that is true, but closely tied to the relationship we have to worship is the relationship we have to reliance. In other words, that with which we that to which we worship and adore also becomes that to which we 
depend upon or rely upon for our purpose and our provision. And of course, this is the truth throughout Scripture. God did not just say, worship me. He says, come to me, rely on me, trust me, believe me, and see that I will not provide for you all that you need. So when I begin to rely on anything else for my purpose, my joy, my meaning, my motive, idolatry begins to sneak in. Timothy Keller defines it this way. It is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, you seek to give you what only God can give. Our biblical counseling ministry helped me identify the common idols of our day. They aren't golden calves or carved figures. People, positions, possessions, money, medicine, control, conversation, education, entertainment, sex, food, unforgiveness, achievement. These are what the folks in our biblical counseling ministry would say they often find when they help someone who's being transparent, being honest, peel back the layers and deal with the idols of their heart. What is truly driving who you are? Now, with the exception of only unforgiveness, all of those other things can also be seen as gifts from God. You see, in and of themselves, they don't begin out sinful. They become sinful when they take the place of God in our life, when we rely upon them more than we rely upon the Lord. Now, last week we took chapter 10 and went through the first 11 verses. This morning we only have two verses, verses 12 and 13. And those two verses really teach us how to tangle with temptation. What do you do with temptation? You see, the pull we feel toward idolatry in all of its forms is real. Anybody who says they don't deal with the temptation to be pulled away from relying solely on God, worshiping only at the feet of God, walking truly and purely with the Lord God alone, well, to be quite honest with you, they're not being honest. We all know the pull we have away from adoring and relying upon him Alone, And there's a lot of words we could use. There's a lot of words the Bible uses. But if we were to compress that pull toward idolatry into one word, I don't think we would do any better than the word temptation. How do you tangle with temptation? What do you do with it? I can tell you from the very beginning of this sermon, I don't have a formula for you to eliminate it. It's not going anywhere. Let me tell you when temptation to pull away from the Lord and the temptation toward idolatry goes away. One of two times in your life. If you're saved when you die and meet the Lord or when he comes back and raptures his church. Until those two moments happen, one can happen first or the other. I don't have the order. I can't guarantee that for you. But until that moment happens, there is no biblical grounds to argue that you can be free from ever feeling the pull toward replacing God with anything else in your life, which ultimately is idolatry. And the fascinating thing about these two verses is that they're power 
packed. I was sharing with our campus pastors who are also preaching this passage today as we walk through it on Wednesday together. And I shared with them some of my insights that I'll be sharing with you from this. When I saw on my preaching plan, which I make about a year in advance, when I saw my preaching plan uh, two verses today, I thought, oh, okay, I just get to deal with two verses. And then I started taking apart these two verses, and I realized I need about six weeks to deal with these two verses. I don't have six weeks. You won't even give me six weeks. You check out. You just come back in the spring when he gets done with verse 13. But it is so powerful to see how the Lord in his divine inspiration can give the Apostle Paul so much wisdom and truth in just a matter of a few phrases, a few sentences, what we have today in the English translation, two verses in the Bible. And they really are a bridge between verses 1 through 11 that we dealt with last week and the concluding parts of the chapter, which we will deal deal with beginning next week. But right in the middle is this bridge And I sense, I can't be sure because Paul doesn't speak of his motive here, but I sense that Paul recognizes that in the subject of idolatry and in challenging people to not give in to temptation, two verses really represent two people in two places dealing with two problems And the answer to those two problems really emerge in the form of two principles. And I want to share those with you this morning. Let's read the Word of God together. I'd encourage you to read silently as I read aloud. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let me teach you about tangling with temptation. Two simple principles. When it comes to the subject of temptation, number one, do not be overconfident. You know, they say pride is that funny feeling you get just before you really mess up. Confidence can get us in trouble. Look at verse 12. I'll read it again. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands Take heed lest he fall. Now, this is not an advanced theological truth. We remember, if you don't know the chapter and verse, you know it by heart because someone has said to you what the book of Proverbs says. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. In the old King James, it says goeth. I don't use the word goeth much, but pride goeth before the fall and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, we understand exactly what God is saying. He's saying the prerequisite to giving in to temptation in any form, specifically in the form of idolatry, which is replacing God with anything else in your life, always is pride. And and, and interestingly, 
That's what's come up over and over again in the book of 1 Corinthians. Way back in chapter 8, Paul was dealing with some people who felt like they had a deeper spiritual knowledge than the rest of us. And it was in and around the subject of eating food offered to idols. I've reminded you of that debate because it continues to come up in this sermon series. There were people in the church who had no problem buying meat that had previously been used in idol ritual worship. There were other people in the church that said, I really have a struggle with that because I was a part of that lifestyle and I don't want to feel any pull. It was a viable debate. Paul actually argues there's no sin in the actual eating of the meat, but the sin is in disregarding how it may cause your brother to stumble. And there's that great message of Christian liberty and yet binding ourselves to the needs of others. But what Paul really cut at in that was not the meat or the ritual, it was the attitude of the person's heart, which is why he says in chapter 8 verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now that's in quotations because as I taught you a few weeks ago, Paul is quoting a famous phrase that the church was using, we all have knowledge. And he says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So he's not talking about biblical, mature knowledge in the Lord. He's talking about our own self-righteous conclusions about where we are that causes us to have an inflated view of our own strength and a watered-down view of the power of temptation in our lives. I don't know if you ever help your kids with math. You know, there's math, and then somebody said, well, that's not good anymore. We're going to do new math. I don't understand new math, but I do remember old math. You know, math as it was for like 7,000 years, and I'm a young earth guy. Let me give you an old math formula for falling into temptation. You take self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is, I'm good. I'm a good person. I go to church at the meal. By the way, you've made a great choice. I'm a good person. I'm good. I pay my bills, pay my taxes, good to my neighbors, friends. I'm really good. Some stuff in my past that I'm not proud of, but I'm a good person. And that becomes the root of your identity. Now listen, the Bible does not teach us that you ought to walk around beat down and sorrowful. In fact, the Scripture builds us up in Christ. But there's a difference between being righteous in the Lord or self-righteous in our own eyes. If you take self-righteousness, you know what self-righteousness does. If I am good, then I begin to think I can be good. That's self-reliance. So if you take self-righteousness and you add it to self-reliance, if you take I am good and you add it to I can be good, it always equals a great fall. This is what verse 12 is saying. In fact, Paul uses these words. He says, take heed, beware. Now, now you may say, well, my goodness, is, is there any place for the victorious Christian life? We're going to get there, praise God, because of verse 13. But Paul never moved away from this um, sober mindset that no matter what he did for the Lord and no matter 
the depth of the faith that he expressed, he was capable of falling into temptation. Remember chapter 9? What did he say in verse 27? I discipline my body. He's not talking to the Corinthians. He's talking about his own life. I discipline my body and keep it under control. Our body is the instrument with which we give in to temptation, whether we do it mentally or physically or emotionally or spiritually. This is our vessel. This is what we live with. And this body is capable of great good, but it's also capable of great evil. This is the curse of sin on this body. It's why this body won't make the next life. A new body will be given, a glorified body. Soul will be redeemed and taken. Body will be left, and when it is resurrected, it will be made new. This body's under the curse of sin, which is why I can be unbelievably 100% guaranteed saved and capable of disobeying the Lord at the same time. It is the tension we live in, and it's not a new tension, which is why Paul says, and keep it under control. Why? Why was Paul concerned? Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. One of the themes running throughout 1 Corinthians is the idea of falling or standing, falling or standing, to fall away from the faith, to fall into sin, to fall according to the temptations of our heart, or to stand and endure in the moment in the faith. So remember, self-righteousness plus self-reliance always equals a fall. Now, when you look at that formula again and you begin to think about it, then you know something simple. That means the opposite is also true. If I am righteous in the Lord, if I seek his righteousness, and then I rely on him, of course, the reverse is true. I will be able to stand. And is that not what Paul is saying here? If any of you thinks he is able to stand, Take heed lest he fall. Now, I'll be honest with you as I study this passage. I don't find myself being consistently bombarded with arrogant, prideful people. Every person in the room, starting with your pastor, has the potential to be prideful, has the potential to be arrogant. So before you categorize yourself as saying, I'm glad pastor preached that message for other people. That's not me. I know I'm a sinner. I know. Remember that you are capable as a human being of having great humility in many areas of your life and yet still harboring pockets of pride. And so I think it's important for us not to just delegate this for other people. Now, I have seen people who were the poster child of self-righteousness and self-reliance, and their life never ends well. They always fall. And I've talked to many people who have experienced a great fall away from the Lord. And when they begin to come up for air and do an autopsy of the situation, they look back. And prior to the fall into sin, prior to the straying away from the Lord, they will tell you they grew cold toward him. They begin to depend on their own ability and their own goodwill, and it never works. Don't be overconfident. But now let me spend the rest of our time dealing where I think many of us live. Paul would say, secondly, when you're tangling with temptation, don't be overwhelmed. Don't be overwhelmed. You you don't have to live in defeat. 
You need to hear somebody say that to you on the authority of God's word. Can I just tell you, you don't have to live defeated. You you don't have to live succumbing to your sin. And don't put sin in the box that we normally do. Normally what we go is, yeah, pastor's talking about the terrible sins of abandoning your family or committing adultery or stealing a bunch of money from your place of work or, heaven forbid, harming another person, murder, lying, deceitfulness, toxicity. Sure, Christians are capable of all those things. But there are other ways to give into temptation. I want to be very careful in always putting before you that my family, like your family, is very much real and we're full of sinners. But one of the sweetest, most righteous people I know happens to be my best friend and my wife. So I went to her with this question. She knows I'm working on a sermon when I ask her these questions. I said, Laurel, what tempts you? What are you tempted? I mean, I know I do. I think that's pride, isn't it? <laughs> Actually, it's false pride. I know I don't. <laughs> it's really just living in a facade. After she rolled her eyes at that comment, I said, what tempts you? Because I think like a man. I am a man. I think about the temptations that men deal with, anger, impatience, lust. What, what tempts you? She thought about it for a while. She's a very thoughtful person. She thinks before she speaks. Her husband does not, but she thinks before she speaks, and she said, she said, idleness. So what do you mean? Not I-D-O-L, I-D-L-E, idleness. I said, you're not lazy. You ain't got time to be lazy. Nobody in our house lazy. Everybody's always doing something. If my dog's laying down, I kick it. Everybody's going to be up. We're doing something. We're going to be lazy. She's not lazy. She's not lazy at all. She'd have time to be. If she got lazy, DSS would show up. So, so, She said, no, 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 I'm always busy, but I can get so overwhelmed with all the things going, my mind goes idle. I I never really finish a task. I get overwhelmed with it, and I can't can't focus, or I get overwhelmed with anxiety about all that I have to do, and so I retreat into another task. Of course, in my mind, I'm so thankful, like, I'm glad that's what my wife deals with. It would have been different driving down the road if she dropped something else on me. But it did remind me of something. Not all forms of temptation come in those deep, dark, secret, terribly damaging sins. You you can be subtly tempted to never finish a quiet time. You can be tempted to not miss an opportunity to take a verbal shot at your wife or your husband. You can be tempted to become enamored by a home or a vehicle your neighbor has that you always dreamt of. You can be tempted in our age of social media to look at the facade, and most of the time it is, of the life people say they're living with the images they post and begin to compare that to the last time you got to go out of town or you were surprised or you flew somewhere with your spouse on a whim. And begin to look at that and compare it to all the hours you're working and all the debt you're servicing and all the food you're feeding children and begin to become bitter with what you don't have or what you're not experiencing. Ladies, I would say to you especially, there are all kinds of ways 
we can be tempted to pull away from the will of God. And men, as you know, ours tend to be more obvious at times. And yet each of us in and of ourselves, regardless of our gender, given to us by God, by the way, regardless of our gender, we all are individual personalities. And in those personalities, we all have individual experiences. Some of your soft spots to temptation do come from the childhood things you endured, from broken relationships of your past, from ways in which you may have been treated or mistreated. You are the the sum total of all those experiences, and I'm not in any way trying to belittle them. In fact, I'm trying to help you see, don't just dismiss verse 13 to the big things you think you've eliminated. Listen to what Paul says as he speaks to people who may be overwhelmed by the constant battle against temptation. He says these words, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let me tell you why you don't have to be overwhelmed. Number one, you are not alone in your struggle. You're not alone. One of Satan's greatest tools is isolation. It's why when anybody ever starts pulling away, whether they pull away from their small group, they pull away from their church, they pull away from brotherhood or sisterhood, they pull away from their spouse, I can predict it. 100% of the time, something's about to break. They're pulling away. And whether or not they're pulling away because they're involved in something or they're pulling away making themselves vulnerable for something, we are setting targets on our own. And so what happens in the human psyche is when we begin to face all these temptations, we begin to trump up a false argument that, man, nobody understands what I'm dealing with. Nobody feels what I'm feeling. And Paul, not me, Paul says, there's nothing you're tempted to to stray away from the will of God in your life that is unique only to you. In other words, your temptations are not unique to you. You're not the first person to deal with pride, anger, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, lust, whatever it may be. You're not the first guy to struggle with pornography. You're not the first woman to struggle with criticism. You're not the first person to struggle with anxiety. You're not the first person to struggle with people. You're not the first person. You're not alone. Now, the wrong way to apply that would be to go, whew, I'm glad I'm not alone. I guess I'm not that bad. That's not the point. The point is, is that you are not alone. What we like to do in our me-centered culture is to pick out reasons why no one else understands our struggle. This is linked to biblical illiteracy. Let me tell you what I mean. When we read our Bible and we know our Bible, God didn't hide the mess from us. Just read the book of Genesis. It's a fiasco of sin and struggle. You hadn't thought about anything that someone hadn't thought about within the first few hundred years of the fall. You're not alone in your struggle. But, but secondly, not only are your temptations not unique, your God is faithful. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Now, I love that because... What we would want to do is we'd go, no temptation is known to you that it's not common to man. You can do it. But then that would be 
a complete contradiction of verse 12. Take heed, lest you think you're not going to fall, you will fall. God is faithful in this. The strength of fighting temptation is not in your own faithfulness. It's first in the faithfulness of God. Think about what Paul tells the believers in Thessalonica. He says this in the book of 1 Thessalonians 5. Abstain from every form of evil. So he's encouraging the church to run from evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So verse 22, you and I should run from evil. Verse 23, God is working to sanctify us. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I love the way it ends. Look at verse 24. It says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I'm not making heaven because I clean my life up. I make heaven because he who promised to finish every good work in me once he began it will finish what he said he would finish. Now, the evidence of the presence of the God who will finish and present me blameless before the Lord is seen by the presence of the Holy Spirit in me. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, you will then have a desire to fight sin, which is exactly why the Bible presents two tensions it does not relieve. On one hand, God will save you. God can forgive you. God will sustain you. God will sanctify you. God will rescue you. God will redeem you. But on the other hand, those who are experiencing that through salvation will fight. They will resist. They will run. They will flee. And the Bible never settles the debate. I can't look at my sin or my holiness and say, well, I'm going to let go and let God and live the way I want to. For any person born of God will not be happy in continual unrepentant sin. Yet when I get beat down and when I struggle and when I fall and when I'm frustrated at myself and when I begin to get to the end of myself, before I walk away, I'm reminded God is still faithful, God will finish, God will forgive, and God will sustain. If you don't do that, then you end up in the form of idolatry called legalism. You end up worshiping your ability to follow the Lord and not the Lord of your ability. That's a fundamental difference. And so when we think about the faithfulness of God, well, how does he do it? Well, because I have the privilege of knowing how the story ended, I know how he does it. He helps you resist temptation because he did. This is what makes Jesus so special. The writer of Hebrews was celebrating this, and this is what he said. Therefore, he had to be made like us, his brothers, in every respect. This is Christ. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. You say, you mean dying on the cross? Yes, that's how he made propitiation. But then upon his death and resurrection, how is he continually a faithful priest between you and the God of heaven. For because he himself has suffered, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I do not pray to a God that's never dealt with temptation. I pray to a God who has felt a draw toward every sin I could ever feel, and yet in temptation, he never succumbed to sin. This is such a powerful picture 
of why Christ is so important in our daily walk and not just that past Savior and that future coming King. When I walk with the Lord today, I walk with the one who wrote the book, literally and figuratively, on resisting temptation. God is faithful. So you're not alone, okay? Last thing. You don't have to be overwhelmed because you're able. You want to put something on Twitter, put this on Twitter. Sin is inevitable. Sinning is not. There is no escaping the presence of sin. But that doesn't mean you ever have to sin. It's important now. You have sinned, as have I. But biblically speaking, I don't have to sin. I am a sinner. And because I am a sinner, there are times in my life where I have given into temptation and sin. But biblically speaking, on the authority of God's word, I don't have to sin. There's always a way for me to honor the Lord. Look at verse 13, the final phrase. I'll close where it closes. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. How? How do I feel the pull of temptation, the pull of replacing God with anything in my life, and resist it? How? Remember what the verse says. God's will over it. He has placed limitations on the power of sin. There is no temptation in your life that is more powerful than the power made available through Christ to resist that temptation. None. It's what the verse teaches very clearly. Now, well, when we think about these limitations, you may say, well, wait a minute now, Pastor. Some of you are thinkers. and You've had two or three cups of coffee. Your mind's firing good. What about when God lets us face temptation? Does not Jesus say, our Father which art in heaven, you know, the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into, boy, it's a tough audience participation moment there. I teed it up for you if you don't know that. Lead us not into, but deliver us from. Now, when Jesus prays that, what's he talking about? So, uh, there's a lot we could say here. It's why I don't have the six weeks that I wish I had to deal with this. But, but I also like simplicity and succinctness, and it matters. When we think about temptation and we think about trials, the differentiation is the source and the motive. Temptation is from Satan. Trials are from God. Why? The answer is in the purpose. The purpose of temptation is to sin. The purpose of a trial is to grow you stronger. Let's go to the half-brother of Jesus to get some clarity. What does James say? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. A few lines down, same chapter, this is what he says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So God allows us to walk through trials in our life to strengthen and to purify our faith. And yet, right after verse 12, you know what James says? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Take me to the scene in heaven of Job. Satan says, God, the only reason Job follows you is because you've been so good to him. God says, okay, I'll let you have some limited freedom to do what you want to to my servant, and I'll show you. So, What came into Job's life was from Satan under the sovereign control of God. And what Satan meant for evil in that situation, God turned it to good. So when you are tempted to sin, that is your flesh and the enemy pulling you, but you have a God so sovereign that even in your temptation, in your resistance, he can take it and turn it into a trial that you endure in order to follow him more perfectly. God has limited what he will allow in your life. So God's will over it is the limitation. God's way out of it is the escape. That's what verse 13 says. He will always provide an escape. When Potiphar's wife went after young Joseph, God had put a door in the bedroom, and he ran through it. There's always an escape. Now, I'll tell you what this means for me. In our blame game culture, we want to find other reasons we sinned. Well, I did this because, I did this because, I did this because. When we get honest with the Lord about our sin, There's no doubt we are impacted and affected by the lives and the decisions of other people. But as a child of God, I never have the right to stand before the Lord guilty of giving into temptation and point to anybody else. It's my sin. I did it. We know this is true, and yet we have a culture that wants to erase every reason for personal responsibility. And yet the Scripture says there's always an escape. God's way out of it is God's way through it, and that's endure. Look how the last phrase ends. Also to provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Some people read this verse wrongly. They think this means that in any moment, in any situation, when we are feeling tempted, whether we're by ourselves in a vehicle, having a thought that's going in a sinful direction, or we're in a relationship that's pulling us in a sinful direction, or we're in a business transaction, and we're tempted to go in a sinful direction, or we're trying to parent our children, and we're tempted to parent in the flesh and be sinful and be angry. Whatever it is, we think that this passage means if I just pray Jesus' name, it'll all go away. I don't have any biblical precedence that says temptation will be removed. I have all the biblical precedence that said you can endure the presence of the temptation when you recognize God has limited it. There is always a way out from sinning. And on your way out, you'll recognize you are enduring. Now, I want to be very practical because this could be a theologically important message But if it doesn't make a difference in how you live when you walk out these doors, then I'm afraid we've wasted our time. When I look at Christians, and this is what pastors do, we take care of Christians when we guide a flock, when we get the opportunity to watch 
Many of you walk with the Lord, and some of you are brand new. Some of you have been walking with the Lord longer than others of us have been alive. And we see the ups and the downs. What are the ways in which people resist temptations? How do you practically take the truth of these two verses and apply them to your life? You may want to jot these down. First, know you. Know you. Where are you tempted to commit idolatry? You worshiping your family, your marriage? Are you worshiping a dream? Some Christians, sadly, seem to live for the weekend. They just grind until they create this facade of events and places to be and go. And they live for the next Saturday, the next Sunday. Is it a sport, a team, a career? Is it returns on your investments? Is it some form of health or security? Whatever it is, you know you. Be honest with yourself. Number two, demand accountability for yourself. Let me tell you what comes naturally to us. We love for other people to be held accountable. You get your order wrong, I want to speak to the manager. I have a hotel reservation, you didn't save me a room, I need to speak to the manager. I buy a product and it's not what it was supposed to be, I'm returning it. We don't mind holding other people accountable. But you have to demand accountability in your life. There's got to be some brother or some sister of the same gender as you who can ask you hard questions about where you are and who you are. Every one of you, if you're married, ought to be able to hand your phone to your spouse and say, my life's an open book to you. Demand accountability for yourself. Number three, rules, rest, and rhythm are essential. See, our society worships at the altar of false freedom. We want to get enough money so we don't have to work. Get enough money so we don't have to stay home. Get enough security so we can do what we want. And yet what we find is we weren't designed for that. It doesn't mean that we have this mundane existence where we trudge through life. It's good to have passions and hopes and dreams. But the people who excel in personal holiness have parameters in their life. They take care of their need to rest. And there are rhythms that they live by. Number four, loving your neighbor does not mean your life is always open to every person. Some of you got to cut some relationships out because that relationship is a constant source of temptation to sin. It's okay. I can love someone and limit their access to me as I work through issues in my life. People say, oh, no, I'm supposed to minister and go and share. Not if you end up wallowing in the sin they're in. You're not ministering to anybody. Sometimes the grace of exclusion helps that person ask some hard questions about their life. Two more, number five, real quick. You will never win a battle you're not prepared for. You cannot wait till you're in the throes of temptation to remember to have your quiet time, remember to pray, and remember to conjure up Scripture. The best men and women of God I know who fight sin well put on the armor of God every single morning. When I talk to guys about sin, I say this ad nauseum. There's a direct relationship between my time with the Lord and my sin. When one is up, the other's down. 
It's just really hard to start your day giving it to the Lord, asking for his grace in your life, being honest and open about your struggles and fears, praying for your family, praying for opportunities. You show me a woman who will dwell with the Lord for those first few moments of her day, and I'll show you a woman who's far more stronger against any sin or temptation she may feel. And the same is true of the men in this room. And finally, fill your things, fill your life with the things of God. You have less time to sin when you serve the Lord. You have less time to sin when you're praying. You have less time to sin when you're worshiping. Fill your life with the things of God. Involve yourself in His work. And you'll find that as you put these basic tools into your life, you become better at tangling with temptation. Let's pray together. Just for a few moments, would you prepare for battle? I know that the summary of a sermon and the summary of a service and the benediction are designed to bring it to a conclusion. I have full awareness that that's about to take place. I I recognize that in, in less than two to three minutes, you're walking out these doors. But how can you listen to a word like this and not respond with a call to arms? To do battle with your temptation. I I don't know where you're pulled. Friend, I don't need to know. It's none of my business. But you know. You know where you're drawn to stray from God's will. For some of you, it may be something very simple. For others of you, you may be in the fight of your life. And the person to your left, to your right, has no idea the depth of darkness you're dealing with. This word is for you. You are able. If you're saved, you're able. And if you're not saved, then step one is surrendering your dead life and giving it to the one who can give you a new life. This is how we fight our battles. Just a few moments as we sing, I want you to reflect on the battles you need to fight. Set right in the moment. Listen to the words of this song. Listen to what it says. And as you feel led, you stand and you begin to worship with us. If you want to kneel at this altar, it's open. Our prayer room is open in the concourse, and our counselors would love to talk with you about any temptation you're tangling with. Friend, you won't shock us. We won't judge you. We'll just love you and help you. This is how we fight our battles.